Anatomy of an ad. Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect. Define an opportunity. Imagine talking to millions of people across the U.S. like I am now. Identify a problem. Creating an audio ad is time-consuming. Offer a solution. Utilize cutting-edge AI. Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did. To create this ad... To learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai. This podcast contains mature content and listener discretion is advised. Also, be advised, we are not medical professionals and this podcast is for entertainment purposes only. We're in. We're in. Welcome to Mystery Team Inc. I'm Maggie. And I'm Kayla. And today I have business. Yes. So I was doing some fact checking from the last episode Mm -hmm. and I just have like a list of facts for you. Okay. So I was fact checking our joke about lead paint in the makeup (laughs) and I was trying to figure out if there was still lead in the makeup in the 1920s. And I learned that the FDA finally made a rule that you can't put lead acetate in makeup in 2018. Oh, my God. So I was correct. <laughs> Do we know, like, which products we should be avoiding? I don't know. All of it? All of it. Just for the sake of... <laughs> yeah. Just in case you're sensitive to lead. <laughs> if you have a lead sensitivity... <laughs> um. Wright Brothers' first flight was in 1903. So when I said it was a decade ago, it was actually closer to like 20 years ago, 25 years ago when it okay. was because tw- I said that around 1928. Um, I was really close with the fuel mixture thing. Uh, it turns out that the fuel mixture control controls the fuel amount so you can mix it with the air. So she was basically not letting any fuel into her engine. Oh, that's cool. And just like hoping it. Yeah, which makes it even more daring. Um, the airline that Helen Rishi was hired and then resigned from was Central Airlines. Does that still exist? No, I don't believe so. Um, you were asking about elevation and flight length of some of these flights. So her Hawaii flight, she flew at 8,000 feet. And it that flight was 600 miles longer than Lindbergh's Atlantic flight. Ha ha. <laughs> <laughs> the flight to Hawaii. Um, and we fly at 30,000, right? Mm-hmm. Whoa. I also learned that we, (laughs) we meaning us pilots, humanity. I also learned something fun about her fashion line, which Mm. is that I'm just going to read from this article. I think this is either from Wikipedia or from an article, which I'll link in the show notes. But Earhart's designs often made direct reference to her love of aviation, employing unconventional materials such as parachute silk and airplane wing patterns for fabric, (gasps) ball-bearing belt buckles, and buttons shaped like propellers. Oh my Um, god, it's way more camp than I thought it would be. I know, but well, if you look at it, though, it's like really nice. You can't like tell, but it's just like the button would be like a little propeller. I love that. And like the shirt would be like a silk shirt, but it would be like parachute silk. (gasps) Um, and then she said, it says that, uh, many of them were made to reflect the designs of her flying clothes and they were made in washable materials to put emphasis on practicality and functionality. She's my hero. She's my hero too. And then the other thing I wanted to say is I forgot to mention that all these aviatrixes had these like, like publicity names that the the (gasps) press gave them, you know, like. Amelia Earhart was called Lady Lindy for a long time, and then she became the first lady of the air. Um, But there were a couple of other really good ones I had to read, which is Mary Heath's aviatrix name that the press gave her was Lady Icarus. Oh, wait. She had like a a bunch of accidents. Oh, okay. (laughs) (laughs) She flew too close to the sun. Um, And then Ruth Nichols was called Sky Girl. (laughs) That's... (laughs) I also learned that Poncho Barnes, Poncho is actually a nickname for Florence Leontine Lowe, 
And she got that nickname because she disguised herself as a man and crewed a banana boat that was running guns to Mexican revolutionaries. <laughs> That's so cool. So, like, what are we doing? What with are our time? literally? What are we doing? I need to read her whole story, but oh I don't know. God. I was just like, oh, that's kind of great. That sounds like a Shakespeare play. Like it a does. woman dresses up as a man and commandeers a boat yeah. to deliver supplies to yeah. a revolution. Ugh. I anyway, would, I would do it. I would drunk. I would put out a production of Drunk whenever that play is called. <laughs> Okay, Are you ready? ready? I'm ready to feel sad. I know. I feel like we're like putting it off. <laughs> I know. So how's your we're day? We're like, there's more fun stories. How's your mom? She's good. When we last left our hero, Amelia and George were planning her flight around the world. Hmm. Other people had flown around the world before, but they had done it via the shortest possible routes, like closer to the poles. And Amelia's plan was to be the first person to fly around the world's waist, crossing the equator, like ac- across the middle of the earth. It was basically the longest possible route, so it made it a lot more dangerous. Was her plan to do it without stopping? No. There oh. were 20 planned stops, okay. which she did. It was like a 29,000-mile journey. Well, how big is the earth? <laughs> I don't know. So she would start out from Oakland. She'd fly to Honolulu, and then she'd go over the Pacific. She said, I have a feeling that there is just about one more good flight left in my system, and I hope this trip is it. After this trip, she planned to give up long-distance flying. I hate this. It was right on the heels of her 40th birthday, which no one knew because she had started lying about her birthday like early on. And so she was about to turn 40, but nobody knew it. How old did they think she was? 39. <laughs> she just moved it by like a year. Okay. I don't remember why. Um, but Did she do it after she was of legal drinking and voting age? I don't remember. That's when I would do it. Yeah. <laughs> She was going to take her Lockheed Electra E-10, which was her first and only twin-engine plane. It was much more substantial than her other planes. It was huge, comparatively, because she knew that a plane engine could, like, conk out at any time. And she was like, if I'm going to do a trip like this, I want to have two engines, and I want to be able to fly with one of them to safety if one of the engines conks out. Because when you only have one engine and your engine conks out. (laughs) Is conks out the uh, official aviation term? That is the official aviation term. Great. I love to learn. In order to complete a trip of this magnitude, she knew that she needed to bring a navigator with her. So she chose Harry Manning, who was a pilot, and he had been the captain of the ship that brought her back to the U.S. after her first transatlantic flight. He had also received the Congressional Medal of Honor for rescuing 32 passengers from a sinking ship in 1929. This dude's cool, too. He was in the Navy, and he took a leave of absence to do the flight with Amelia. Jean Vidal was a director for the aeronautics branch in the United States Bureau of Air Commerce. And Amelia actually helped him get and keep that job. I didn't have time to get into it. That's really all you need to know. Jean set it up so that William Miller, who was a superintendent from the Bureau, would make all of the arrangements for her flight with the Navy and all the various stops and like all the radio frequencies. And basically, flying around the world would require a lot of things to be put in place. So it required a number of highly skilled mechanics to be stationed in all the places she was stopping around the world. So they were going to send out like Navy mechanics. It it required like 18 gallons of fuel to just be like deposited (laughs) in different places around the world. How much? Not gallons. Sorry. uh, Barrels. What'd you say? How much soup and tomato juice? It required a lot of soup and tomato juice to be stationed all (laughs) over the world. It required Navy ships to be stationed over big stretches of ocean so that she could get her bearings and make sure she was on course. And it required, at this stage in the planning process, a mid-air refueling over the Pacific, which she'd never done before and had only recently been, like, done by the Navy. That's scary. The Navy was like, we're not going to do the mid-air refueling because it would require a lot of training on your part and we don't want to pay for it, basically. So... Jean was like, listen, if you did that, it would require you to fly 4,000 miles over water, which is about 26 hours of nonstop flying. So, and that's like, if nothing goes wrong, there's no headwinds. That's like on a nice day. (laughs) So Jean was like, listen, there's this little island. It's called Howland Island. It's 1,800 miles from Hawaii. It's half a mile wide and two miles long. And the U.S. is, like, starting to the process of constructing an emergency airstrip there for flights to Australia and New Zealand. And he was like, 
what if we hurry up and finish that airstrip and you can use it? So the U.S. like hurried up to finish their construction of a little airstrip on this island, which FDR didn't even know about until she wrote him a letter. (laughs) And we only know about that because he sent a memo to the interior that was like, Amelia says we're building a runway on a tiny island and the construction crew is supposed to leave next week. But apparently they need executive approval on some funds from the Public Works Administration. So I'm giving approval for that. (laughs) What about our bridges? The I support works, this. The Public Works Administration did some good stuff at this time. So it's now that it's a, it's a problem. Yeah, I'm just saying, like, if they can build an airstrip then, like, why can't we fix bridges now? I know. Um, there was also, like, a little prefab house on that island that she was going to stay in. And Aww. they sent 18 drums of octane gas there for her. Shortly after all that, Gene resigned from the Bureau of Air Commerce due to infighting. And he went to California to visit his mom and hang out with Amelia. In March of 1937, Amelia and George flew to Oakland. They waited for the weather to clear up. George was characteristically nervous and on edge, as he always was before her flights. When reporters asked if he was going around the world with her, he said, Well, between 185 pounds of husband and 185 pounds of gasoline, there's a lot of difference. And the gasoline wins. (laughs) God, they're all so clever. They're so much fun. He also, there were reporters asking her about her flight. And at one point he came out and went, he was like, yeah, what did he say? He was like, what's the big idea flying around the world? Don't you know a woman's <laughs> place is in the home? This is my dream love. I know. I guess I would have to have like an extreme hobby first. <laughs> like no one can be like, get back in the house as a joke. But yeah. I'm like, well, I was just going to watch like, Great British Bake Off on my couch and bake along this season. They're, and like, they're like, a woman's place is in the- <laughs> Don't you know a woman's place is in the kitchen? You're like with your with your oven mitts on, like covered in flour. (laughs) I'm trying. They're like your your puff pastry is marbling. (laughs) They're like it's a bit stodgy. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe if you didn't spend so much time on that damn podcast, your pastries wouldn't be so stodgy. (laughs) That's true. (laughs) (laughs) Puff pastry is so hard. It's impossible. Amelia's technical advisor, Paul Mance, had helped her train on the. Electra's controls because they were there were like double the controls in there um, for instrument flying. Yeah, double the engines, double the buttons. Exactly. And she had to pass a blind flying test, which she did with ease. What does that mean? I'm not 100% sure, so don't quote me on this, but from what I read, it sounds like she practices in a simulator, which has no, like you can't see anything out of it. You're just like in the simulator flying based on what the gauges say and they measure like whether or not like you're doing it right and then I think she flies in the cockpit with like limited visibility with just the instruments I thought she was blindfolded and she had to like press the buttons that would be fun that sounds no harder. it just means you can't see outside oh but interesting that you mentioned that because Amelia realized that one of the big things facing pilots was eye strain. And originally, like, the instruments were, like, off to the side. And she was like, it's too, co- like, it's bad for my eyes to have to, like, look up and look down. So they, that they like, moved a bunch of the most important gauges so they were right under the windshield uh, so she could see. She's a maverick. She is. It's <laughs> a Top Gun reference. Oh, yeah. Have I seen it? Once <laughs> many years ago. Do I remember it? No. No. Do you have the need? <laughs> no. <laughs> I know that's also a reference, and <laughs> I liked what I liked your version. The plane was outfitted with a 50-pound Western Electric radio transmitter, which transmitted on the following frequencies: 500 kilocycles, which is like kilohertz, 3105 kilocycles, and 6210 kilocycles. Basically, what I learned is radios in this time they like tuned the radio to certain frequencies inside the radio. Mm. Had not gotten to this technology yet. We're I guess. not at knobs. This is pre-knob. <laughs> Harry Manning, who was the navigator, insisted that the most important frequency for him was 500 kilocycles because that is the international distress channel and the channel that ships at sea and shore stations transmit on. And it only carries Morse code, but he would use it to navigate. And once they left Honolulu, that would be basically his sole source of navigation was 500 kilocycles. The Electra was also outfitted with a new Bendix direction finder loop, which could determine the direction that a radio signal was coming from, and the pilot and navigator could then use that to set a course to follow the sound, Ooh. which was very helpful over water. 
Um, and there are photos of Amelia posing with the DF loop, which is like a little circle, and she like puts her face through oh. it. This was like relatively new technology, that I believe. So cute. The way it worked is you would move it around in a circle, and then wherever you the radio signal you couldn't hear it is where it was weakest, and then you could use that to extrapolate where the radio signal was coming from. And that's called getting a minimum or getting a null. So a few days before her flight, her technical advisor, Paul Mance, and navigator, Harry Manning, took the Electra up for a last-minute radio check, and they couldn't get communication with the San Francisco Tower on 500 kilocycles. The other frequencies worked fine, so they called in a radio expert. And the next day, Amelia and the guys took it up with the repaired radio. They flew 100 miles out to sea, and the radio worked perfectly. Amelia worked with a Lockheed engineer to figure out exactly how to get the best mileage, exactly how to get uh, how much weight the plane could carry, and based on their calculations, Amelia figured out that she could add two more people for the first leg of the trip. Ooh. And she decided to bring on a second navigator so that Harry Manning didn't have to do both the navigating and the radio operating because that was like two different jobs. And that that way they could have an expert celestial navigator when they were over the Pacific. <gasps> That's my dream job. His name was Fred Noonan. 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 Fred Noonan was in charge of Pan Am's navigation school. He'd been a Navy sailor. He became a pilot. He was highly regarded as Pan Am's top celestial navigator. He was familiar with the Pacific and had crossed it 18 times in the China Clipper, which was a flying boat built for Pan Am that was used as the first Trans-Pacific airmail service. A flying boat? Yeah, it's that's exactly what plane. it sounds like. No. Yeah. But <laughs> instead of it was like a seaplane, but instead of having pontoons, it just was like the belly of it was a was a boat. So you would like land it on the water. It was huge. And I stole this from Wikipedia, but they say the Clippers were, for all practical purposes, luxury flying hotels with sleeping accommodation, dining rooms, and leisure facilities, in addition to the usual aircraft seating. On early flights, the crew outnumbered the passengers. As a result, the price of a return air ticket to San Francisco, sorry, from San Francisco to Honolulu, was $1,700, which is equivalent to $32,000 in 2021. <laughs> to fly in an air cruise In the airboat, yeah. I don't even like water cruise ships no if you put it in the air that's the only way to make it worse yeah because then you could crash and then sink it's <laughs> <laughs> a good point it's a second layer you could of hit danger. an iceberg above water and below <laughs> you hit the the big part of it and the tip yeah the double titanic we call that <laughs> fred noonan was a world-renowned navigator but he did have a drinking problem Fred Noonan's colleagues said that even when he was drinking, he never drank on the job. He left Pan Am. Um, since his death, people have said that Pan Am fired him and that it was probably because of his drinking. I've also read that he left because there were no opportunities for him. Like he'd reached the ceiling on celestial navigation, I guess. And he wanted to expand his flying career, which is why he Aww. went on this trip. At any rate, when he signed on for the world flight, Amelia had no concerns about bringing him on. Jean didn't think it was a good idea to bring him on and told Amelia not to. Um, she asked Jean if he would go with her instead, but he was like, no, because I'm not a professional navigator. And I think she was probably like, well, that answers that question then. Yeah. Fred <laughs> going. Well, why don't you do it, yeah. Jean? <laughs> yeah. At the last minute, Paul Mance asked to go with Amelia on the first leg of the trip to Honolulu um, because he was like, then... I can help you if any mechanical issues come up. And also my fiance is on her way to Hawaii by boat, coincidentally. And Amelia was like, okay, fine. Sounds like he wants to get paid to go hang out with his fiance in Hawaii. Yeah, just wait. Amelia said, by the end of this first long hop, any incipient mechanical troubles should show up. It'll be fine to have him on hand for a final check before I shove off westward because she's always a good sport. Navy ships were on the move to their various assistance points in the Pacific. Mechanics had landed in various cities and islands around the world. The plane was loaded with scientific equipment because part of the deal was that Amelia would use the plane as a flying laboratory for Purdue. That's so cool. Collecting air samples at super high altitudes and doing other fun science-y stuff. I want to do that. Apparently when they were like loading the uh, air sampling containers, Fred, I think it was Fred, coughed on one. <gasps> And they were going to, like, no. throw it away. And then Amelia said, leave it in because I want to give the scientists a surprise when they're doing all the high air sampling and they don't know. There's something on the wing. Yeah. <laughs> Can you imagine being that scientist? Like, there's human <laughs> bacteria. Surviving? Like, yeah. <laughs> we have much bigger problems than aviation, my yeah. friends. Approximately 10,000 people camped out behind the hangar where her plane was housed. 
Oakland Airport was receiving hundreds of calls every day from women who, quote, seem to feel Miss Earhart is a, com- is a champion of their sex's ability to accomplish feats of flying equaling those of any man. Surpassing, but yeah. But yeah. <laughs> I just love the idea of like the switchboard blowing up with women yeah. calling in to be, to be like, is Miss Earhart flying today? <laughs> She's a champion of my sex. <laughs> so cute. She, most of her like correspondences that made her laugh were ones she got from got from kids and they would all write her letters and she said then at some point there became this trend of naming things after her and she got a letter from a little girl that was like i i don't have a middle name so i've adopted amelia as my middle name and i have a duck but i can't name him amelia because he is a he duck (laughs) a he duck yeah and she said there's like a there's a beautiful blue green lake behind my house and i've named it amelia weather delayed her flight But on March 17th, after pinning shamrocks on all the crew's shirts, Amelia was prepared for takeoff. As her plane idled on the runway, George ran out on the runway and climbed up on the wing to say a few words to her. Then he climbed down and they were off. Do we know what he said? We do not know. He was probably like, get your fucking ass back. (laughs) And then he was like, love you. (laughs) Yeah. He was probably like, the Tribune needs that first article tomorrow. Love you. (laughs) They arrived in Honolulu in 15 hours and 47 minutes, setting a new speed record. Not not a big deal. (laughs) Surpassing all men. Once again. Harry Manning was working the radio when the generator blew. Um, So for the end of their trip, Fred Noonan used the new Bendix radio direction finder to set the rest of their course. It was successful. 80 miles out, Amelia gave the controls over to Paul Mance to land the plane Paul did two passes of the field to check the windsock because the winds were causing problems. And he brought the plane down so hard that he weakened the landing gear. Come on, man. Literally, man. Literally. This all would have been fine. Because one man wanted to see his fiance. Correct. Take a boat. (laughs) That's for lizards. (laughs) Amelia was upset and Paul was so perturbed that instead of cutting the engine so that they could meet the welcoming committee who was waiting for them on the runway to unveil a plaque dedicated to Amelia. He just taxied the plane into the hangar and stormed off the field without giving the mechanics instructions about how to fix the plane for like how to prepare it for the next leg of the trip. God, men really aren't equipped to be leaders. So fragile. Can you imagine if we had one in charge of any part of society? (laughs) It would just be like this all the time. After this, Paul and Amelia's relationship turned sour. She still consulted him, but only in a perfunctory way. Paul did tell the mechanics that for the last six hours of the flight, one of the propellers was frozen in place. Is that true? Yes. Army mechanics discovered that the wrong kind of lubricant had been used on the propellers and had frozen at high altitudes. Is that Paul's fault? We don't know whose fault it was. I'm going to blame Paul. (laughs) Um, They had to remove the propellers and send them to the Navy's airfield and have them fixed. And they worked all through the night to get them ready for takeoff the next day. Amelia had given George an estimated flight time, and it turned out that she was only off by five minutes. So when she was resting in Hawaii, she got a cable from George saying, please try to be more exact. (laughs) I love him so much. You know how Dorothy Kilgallen and her husband had that, like, breakfast with the Kilgallen family or whatever it was called? And they had, like, a little radio show that aired where they just, like, would be husband and wife and talk about, like, stuff. I talked about it in the Dorothy Kilgallen episode. That was so long ago. I just wish that Amelia and George had one of those. Oh, my like God. Like, if they had a little radio show or, like, a little podcast, I would listen to it all yeah. the time. I think what makes their relationship special, though, is that, like, this is just how they were. It's just for them. I know. Yeah. <laughs> it's just for them. Please try to be more exact. Please try to be more exact. <laughs> and as always, he addressed it to AE, and he signed it GP or GPP. It's really cute because even in like their when they talk about each other, they refer to each other as AE and GP. Paul decided for some reason that the Navy's airfield was preferable to takeoff. Um, Why are we listening to him? So he had the plane moved and prepared for takeoff the next dawn. I think it was because the runway was muddy at the other. It was muddy in both places, but the Navy's was like bigger, I guess. I thought that he wasn't going past this. He's not. He's just her, her technical consultant. And at this point, she hadn't cut him off yet. So he basically was like, move the plane. So they moved the plane. At 5.30 a.m., Amelia started the engines with Harry and Fred aboard. As the plane moved down the runway, it suddenly pulled to the right. Amelia throttled down the left engine. The plane swung and tilted. The right landing gear collapsed and the plane (gasps) smashed into the ground, sliding forward and throwing sparks everywhere. 
Some witnesses said it looked like a tire blew. Amelia's conclusion was that the right shock absorber gave out. The one that Paul was in charge of fixing? The one that somebody smashed into the ground when they landed in Hawaii. (laughs) (laughs) I want to make a Pixar villain who looks and talks like that. It's me. (laughs) I am the Pixar villain. I'm the villain of my own story. (laughs) Ladies. You can be the villain of your own story. <laughs> you don't need a man to do it. <laughs> a man comes in and is like, um, I'm not really looking for anything serious. And you're like, stop. <laughs> I'm the villain in my story. All my life, I've just been waiting for a villain to come along. And I finally realized the, real, realized the, real, the villain was in here all along. <laughs> Someday my villain will come. Um. Obviously, this was a disaster from a mechanical perspective. The trip had to be postponed. The plane had to be shipped back to Lockheed and Burbank. The right wing, the engine housings, the propellers, and the fuselage were all critically damaged. The oil tanks had ruptured. So Amelia and her plane sailed back to the U.S. No! But there were mechanics waiting all over the world and Navy ships stationed in the Pacific. The plane sustained $15,000 worth of damage, and then the Navy was like, here's your bill, since we sent all those people out and shit. They only charged them, like, I. it was, like, minimal. They just charged them for, like, the repairs on the plane and stuff. But obviously this was a problem. So everyone had to, like, go back and basically start from square one. The repairs took two months. No. Amelia and George couldn't afford to fix the plane, so George went to a PR friend who helped them raise the money with donations from Vincent Bendix and Floyd Odlum. Oh, Bendix of the Bendix Loop? Mm-hmm. Wow. And of the Bendix, the race that she came Oh, in. right. Yeah. I was like, why does that sound familiar? Yeah. Not Cliff Han- Henderson, who f- founded Palm Springs hmm. or Palm Desert. He's the villain in all of our stories. <laughs> yeah. So because the repairs took two months, Harry Manning had to go back to work in the Navy, and had to abandon the project. During this time, Amelia changed her plans. So instead of going around the world from Honolulu westward, she decided to go around the other way. She was going to, first she was going to leave from Oakland and fly to Miami, and then she was going to go around the world that way and end her flight with the Pacific Crossing. She did this partly to avoid monsoon season, because now they waited two months and it was like going to be monsoon season. Partly because this way she'd be flying with the winds instead of against them. And partly to give her the cross-country flight to test the newly repaired Electra. All very smart. Originally, Fred Noonan was only going to fly with them across the Pacific. And then he was going to hop off and she was going to finish the trip, do the rest of the trip with Harry Manning. But since she didn't have Harry Manning anymore, this way Fred could be the navigator the whole way around. And she'd still have the celestial navigator over the Pacific. Because Jean Vidal was no longer with the Bureau of Air Commerce, William Miller had been sent on another assignment, and he was no longer helping to coordinate Amelia's flight plans and refueling stops. So George had to do all of it, going all the way around the world. He was happy to do it, but he wasn't a pilot, so he was basically just, like, doing the best he could. Um, This resulted in Amelia and George, like, just having to kind of figure it out. Mm -hmm. And as we'll see, they would sometimes send telegrams and cables to the Navy like the day before a flight to change or confirm a flight plan. This makes me nervous. I know. The antenna that allowed the radio to transmit on 500 kilocycles was a 250-foot-long antenna that had to be reeled out the bottom of the plane after takeoff and reeled back in before landing. And it was awkward to operate because it had to be operated by the radio navigator, radio operator and navigator. And neither Amelia or Fred were proficient enough in Morse code to use it. So they decided to just leave it off entirely because it added so much extra weight that could be used for gasoline. A radio technician at Lockheed suggested that if he lengthened the antenna used for the other two frequencies, that they could pick up 500 kilocycles as well. So they did. Again, though, neither of them were proficient in Morse code. They could both kind of understand and do it very slowly. On May 21st, 1937, 10 years and one day after Lindbergh's flight and five years and one day after her own transatlantic flight, she set off with George, Fred Noonan, and a flight mechanic named Bo McNeely from Oakland headed toward Miami. In a test flight, they found that her new antenna wasn't working, so they replaced it with a new one. On June 1st, 1937, Amelia and Fred Noonan climbed into the Lockheed Electra. Once again, George ran out onto the runway. 
climbed up to the cockpit and gave Amelia a kiss and shook Fred's hand. At 6.04 a.m., they were gone. And that's where we will pick back no. up. After the break. We'll be. Prolonging my sadness. Only by like a few minutes. Please be more precise. <laughs> <laughs> we'll be right back after these messages. Anatomy of an ad. Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect. Define an opportunity. Imagine talking to millions of people across the U.S. like I am now. Identify a problem. Creating an audio ad is time-consuming. Offer a solution. Utilize cutting-edge AI. Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did to create this ad. To learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai. And we're back. We're back. And sad. Not yet. (laughs) (laughs) So as I said, they had, I think, 20 planned stops. They flew from Miami to Puerto Rico, then to Venezuela, Suriname, Brazil, and then over the Atlantic to Dakar. Um, In some places, they just stayed and rested. In some places, they went sightseeing. They flew over the Atlantic, and actually, actually, they landed in St. Louis, Senegal, because Amelia doubted Fred's navigation, but it turned out he was right. So then they <laughs> flew to Dakar. In Dakar, they were thrown a reception by the Aero Club, and they stayed with the governor general. Then they flew to Gao, Mali, and spent the night in the desert, just like out in the desert, because it was so nice. This sounds so cool. Uh, should we learn how to fly and do this? Yes. <laughs> they flew down the Niger River, where they saw hippos. And then they spent the (laughs) night, danger, (laughs) and then they spent the next night in El Fasher, Sudan. In her manuscript for her next book, World Flight, she wrote, When I was a little girl in Kansas, the adventures of travel fascinated me. With my sister and my cousins, I gratified my ambitions by make-believe. This was in a barn behind our house in Atchison. There, in an old abandoned carriage, we made imaginary journeys full of fabulous perils. Early, we discovered the special joys of geography. The maps of far places that fell into our clutches supplemented the hair-raising experiences of the decrepit carriage. Map traveling took its place beside window shopping as an accepted diversion. The map of Africa was a favorite. The very word meant mystery. Blithely, we rolled on our tongues such names as Senegal, Timbuktu, Nagami, El Fasher, and Khartoum. We weighed the advantages of the River Niger and the Nile— No Livingstone, Stanley, or Rhodes explored with more enthusiasm than we. As the girl grew older, the inclination did not mend. Indeed, as flying brought far places closer, the horizon and what lay beyond it gained added lure. More than once, the electress pilot, who had been that little girl, thought of those early flights of fancy in the old carriage as she herself flew almost straight across Central Africa from the Atlantic to the Red Sea. For me, the dreams of long ago had come true. Only back in Atchison, our imaginary African treks were on camels or elephants. Then airplanes were of another day. I'm going to cry. Me too. I need to get my tissues out because I'm going <laughs> to, this is like the point at which I'm about to start crying. I'm really glad you brought <laughs> tissues. I want some too, please. I'll give you some. I want to go back to the part where we were shitting on that man. <laughs> okay. <laughs> that is a fun Thank part. Thank you. You're welcome. They stopped in Khartoum, went on to Asab, and then crossed the Red Sea, which no one had done by plane before. Did they stay one night in each of these places, or did they sometimes mm-hmm. stay more? Um, sometimes they stayed more and did, like, repairs on the plane or, like, yeah. In Karachi, Amelia and Fred rode camels, and <laughs> that was obviously, like, hard to do. And Fred was like, you better put on your parachute. <laughs> <laughs> in Karachi... Um, They were also checked out by British doctors who declared that they were both in the best of health. On June 15th, George was able to call her on the telephone from the Herald Tribune office. The Herald Tribune had the exclusive rights to her story, so she'd been transmitting and mailing her writings and flight logs back there ahead of publishing her book that was going to be called World Flight. When he asked how she was, she said, Swell, never better. And when he asked if she was having a good time, she said, You betcha. It's a grand trip. We'll do it again, together sometime. (laughs) (laughs) They flew to Calcutta, where Amelia made a call to George. Jean Vidal and Paul Collins were both there with him at the Herald Tribune office. Amelia said, and they all heard it, I'm starting to have personnel trouble. Hmm. It's been debated since then if she said personal trouble. They're pretty sure she said personnel trouble. 
To which George said, stop the flight right there and don't take any chances. Amelia said, I only have one bad hop left and I'm pretty sure I can handle the situation. George asked her to call him when she landed in New Guinea. And Jean and Paul took that conversation to mean that Fred was drinking. Interesting. Amelia and Fred got caught in a monsoon and they had to set down twice before they continued on to Bangkok. She made a bet with another pilot and they raced to Singapore and she won $25. Nice. Then they flew to Bandung, Indonesia. And while she was there, she had another call with George where they settled some arrangements for the flight from Leh, New Guinea to Howland Island. And she wrote, there were details to settle about radio frequencies, weather reports, and the like. She was scheduled to be back in Oakland in a few days and to give an address at Purdue on July 2nd. But now they had to spend an extra day in Bandung while the mechanics tuned up the Electra. So they went sightseeing. From there, they took off but had to turn back because of instrument malfunctions. She called George again from Indonesia and he asked if everything was all right with the plane. She said, yes, good night, hon. And he told her, good night. I'll be sitting in Oakland waiting for you. They landed in Australia on June 28th, and the Australian government wanted to know why she hadn't radioed them, and she informed them that her direction-finding receiver wasn't functioning. Mechanics discovered that the generator fuse had blown. They replaced the fuse and tested it, and it worked. As Amelia and Fred flew to Leh, they were able to radio Australian ground crews from 200 miles out. In Leh, Amelia went out to dinner, Fred went out and had a few drinks, um, and talked planes with some people from the airline that were there. The next day, mechanics were back at work on her radio, and Amelia told them that Fred had been unable, because of radio difficulties, to set his chronometers. So chronometers were timekeeping devices that were basically like incredibly accurate watches that were used for maritime navigation. So latitudinal lines are parallel, but longitudinal lines are close together at the poles and far apart at the equator. So in order for a navigator to actually figure out where they are, they need to know the exact time, and they use the Greenwich hour angle, which shows the position of the sun and stars at exactly every minute of every day, every time of year, and they use that to calculate where they are. Each minute that the timepiece is off results in a 15-degree miscalculation at the equator. 15 degrees of longitude is 60 nautical miles. So for every minute that your watch is off, you're plotting yourself 60 miles off course. And without radio communication from ships to give you the exact time, you can't set your chronometers. For reference, the Hawaiian Islands are 6,423 square miles. Howland Island is about half of a square mile. But no one had any suspicion that Fred would have any trouble finding it because he is literally the best like navigator in the world. From Leigh, Amelia sent the following telegram to George. Radio misunderstanding and personnel unfitness probably will hold one day. Have asked Black for forecast for tomorrow. You check meteorologist on job as Fred Noonan must have star sights. Arrange credit if Tribune wishes more story. Susan Butler tells us that radio misunderstanding likely refers to the fact that while they were in lay, they learned that the Itasca, the Coast Guard ship that would be guiding them to Howland Island, couldn't take radio bearings on her at 3105 kilocycles. She had thought that they would be able to. While in Leh, Amelia and Fred went sightseeing together. Fred drove them. They went to bed early the night before their flight. With the maximum amount of gasoline, 1,100 gallons, which was about 97 gallons more than they would need to get to Howland, they took off from Leh at exactly zero hour Greenwich time on July 2nd. The Itasca waited by Howland Island, sending black plumes of smoke into the air that could be seen for miles around. Someone from Lay radioed Amelia during the flight, and she wasn't responding to him, but then he was able to get a response from her later in the flight. And based on her radio messages and the speed they were going, it looked like they would be in the air for 21 hours. 14 hours and 15 minutes in, the Itasca received a radio message from Amelia, but it was garbled, and all they could hear was, cloudy weather, cloudy. They continued to receive messages from her asking them to broadcast bearings on the 3105 kilocycle frequency on the hour and the half hour. They could not get a reading on her. 16 hours and 24 minutes into the flight, they were receiving messages from her, but her voice was unreadable. Itasca was sending her the weather reports, 
as requested, but they were sending them in Morse code and sending voice trans and then started sending voice transmissions as requested. Before the flight, she said, please only radio me in voice. I'm not, we're, neither of us is quick enough to decipher Morse code. At 1745, she said, we must be on you, but cannot see you, but gas is running low, have been unable to reach you by radio. We are flying at 1,000 feet. At 1928, she said, K-H-A-Q-Q, which is her call sign, calling Itasca. We are circling, but cannot hear you. Go ahead on 7,500 with a long count, either now or on the schedule time on half hour. At 1930, she said, K-H-A-Q-Q, calling Itasca. We received your signals, but unable to get a minimum, meaning her direction finder. Please take bearing on us and answer 3105 with voice. Her direction finder isn't picking up the Itasca signal, so she's asking Itasca to use their direction finder to pick up her and then radio to her where she is, basically, give her bearings. It sounds like the signal that she received was in Morse code because she asked them to come back on 3105 with voice. In the logs, in the Itasca's logs, this is noted as Amelia on again at 0800 local time says, here's us on 7.5 megs. Go ahead on 7,500 again. So I guess they were radioing her on 7,500. At 2014, she said, we are on the line of position 157-337. We'll repeat this message on 6210 kilocycles. We are now running north and south. It was the last message the Itasca received from Amelia Earhart. An hour and a half later, they reported Amelia had not arrived. At this point, people on like were out on the deck of the ship looking for her. People were on Howland Island looking for her. Like Everyone was just looking up, expecting to see her plane. Based on conditions, they determined that Amelia must have been northwest of the island and began a search. The Itasca continued searching through the night while they readied a seaplane in Honolulu. The plane left Honolulu the next day, but had to turn back due to 10-foot waves in the search area. The Navy sent out four more ships. On the radio, they asked Amelia to send out her carrier signal by keying into her microphone. They kept thinking that they heard something, and the Itasca went out to investigate, but never found anything. By July 6th, they had searched 4,500 miles during the day and night, and the Navy's fastest ship had set out from the West Coast. George believed that Amelia might have gone down in the Phoenix Islands, and they sent planes to look at Gardner Island, which is now called Nikumaroro Island, McKean Island, and the Carondelet Reef. They found nothing. The Navy searched 250,000 miles, the largest search in Navy history. The fastest ship arrived on July 13th, 11 days after her last transmission. They, they also found nothing. The official search was called off on July 19th. George continued to use all his resources to find Amelia and launched his own search, chartering boats to search all the Phoenix Islands, the Gilbert and Marshall Islands. He suggested that the U.S. pressure Japan and England to join the search as well. Jean Vidal convinced President Roosevelt to search the Gilbert Islands a second time, but Amelia was never seen again. The Navy's official conclusion was that Amelia and Fred crashed the Electra into the ocean and it sank. Based on cables Amelia sent to the Itasca before leaving Ley, we know that Amelia told them the frequencies she'd be using, told them to only send voice messages to her, told them what times she'd be transmitting and what times she would be listening. Because nowadays we have like an open dialogue between a pilot and like ground control. Um, at the time, there was no like set system for this. So what she did was said, I'll be listening on the hour and half hour and I'll be transmitting on like the 15 and 45 or vice versa, something like that. She told them that she'd be using Greenwich time and asked them to send her time in Greenwich time. She also asked that they send signals on 7,500 kilocycles for her to use her direction finder on. And she specifically asked if that frequency would be okay. Itasca did not advise her that it would be almost impossible for them to take bearings on those frequencies because of their equipment. The Itasca's equipment was designed to work only on lower frequencies, up to 550 kilocycles. Do we know why they didn't say anything? We don't know. We also know that they, or we, we have reason to believe that they didn't tell her that 7,500 kilocycles is too high of a frequency for efficient direction finding. And we know that they sent most of their in-flight transmissions to her in Morse code even though she was like, don't do that. 
Is Car- that because they couldn't send the transmission on the frequency she wanted them to send the voice transmission on, which they didn't tell her? I'm not 100% sure. I think that they did send transmissions to her on the frequencies that she asked for. But the main thing was that she couldn't use her radio direction finder. Copy. Carl Allen, who helped Amelia prepare her plane in Miami, said that the problem wasn't that Amelia and Fred didn't bring their 500 kilocycle radio antenna. It was the fact that that fact was not communicated to the Itasca. Oh. They couldn't get bearings on her at the frequency she was transmitting on um, because the the Itasca's direction finder was designed to work only with lower frequencies up to 550 kilocycles. And they couldn't get a reading on her at 3105 or at 6210. And she couldn't get bearings on them at 7500. Tiger, which is the International Group for Historical Aircraft Recovery, says that based on the Itasca's logs, they weren't always broadcasting at the scheduled times that Amelia said she'd be listening. Sometimes they were, but a lot of their transmissions they were sending in between. So we don't even know if she was listening at that time. I honestly, I honestly don't know if they, if she could even run the radio just like at all times in yeah. in the plane. And given the fact that it kept blowing a fuse, I think it probably was smart not to do that. Something else worth noting is that they were having radio trouble for a lot of the trip. Like they were constantly replacing things. And after that last, last transmission, their radio could have easily blown another fuse and stopped working entirely. Susan Butler says the fact that they kept blowing a fuse belies an underlying electrical problem. Tigar says that when the Lockheed technician lengthened the antenna that could have that could then get 500 kilocycles and all the other ones, that that could have actually caused it to have problems receiving certain wavelengths because it was in this weird length where it was landing on three fourths of a wavelength for certain mm. wavelengths. They also said that the V formation of the antenna, because it was like formed in a V and I think it was either on top or on bottom of the plane really close to the metal skin of the airplane. They said that the V sides of the antenna could have reacted and reflected off one another or the airplane, which could have caused some interference. That's mostly what people say about the radio and why she wasn't able to hear Atasca. Also, as I mentioned, ground control or whatever in lay tried to radio her and she didn't respond right away. So it seems like the radio was not working properly. Outside of radio problems... There are theories about what happened to her. They're all stupid. I'm going to briefly touch on the stupid ones. (laughs) I can't wait. Amelia Earhart was not a spy, and the government did not send her to get lost in the Pacific to spy on the Japanese. I don't believe that. Amelia Earhart was not captured by the Japanese and taken prisoner and executed. We, we know this because there is a journalist who did a deep dive on this and learned that there were only two Japanese ships in the area at the time. And one of them actually set out to help the search, but was turned back uh, by a superior because they didn't want to accidentally escalate tensions in the Pacific because the U.S. is the worst. This theory was bolstered by a photograph that allegedly showed Amelia Earhart in Japan that was discovered that was quickly debunked by bloggers who discovered that that photo came from a Japanese travel brochure from 1935. <laughs> To be fair, it does feature a woman from the back with a similar haircut who is sitting down. So easy mistake to make. Okay. Now that that's out of the way. I love that. They were like, look at the hair. She's sitting down just like you do in a plane. (laughs) (laughs) We can talk about more plausible theories. The main theory is that she ran out of gas and crashed into the ocean. There's also a possibility that she lived for hours or even days after her last transmission. It's possible that she flew around until she ran out of gas. Tigar, who I respect, but I'm also a little bit getting Tom Colbert vibes from. So we have to just like. (laughs) Um, If you don't attend our live shows, um, Tom Colbert is a man. He's a journalist. Sorry, a journalist. Who has put out a bunch of documentaries. (laughs) Who dedicated a lot of his life and money and emotional and psychological energy to solving the D.B. Cooper mystery. And sometimes he has a habit of going down a rabbit hole that's not helpful. So I get that vibe a little bit from Tigar. But they've done a lot of good stuff. So we have to kind of like weigh the evidence. So Tigar developed a theory that Amelia landed on Gardner Island slash Nicomaroro. 
because she was flying a search pattern and to the north of that search pattern was Howland and to the south was Nicomaroro. Mm-hmm. So they say if she kept going south, she would have hit that island. A lot of people say the Navy searched that island. They didn't find anything. So there's that. <laughs> Just putting that out there. Soup for thought. <laughs> Soup for thought. <laughs> This theory is mostly based on a longtime Amelia Earhart theory, which stems from a British expedition to the island in 1940. I have to touch on this because if you even Google Amelia Earhart, you're going to get a bunch of news articles about this. So in 1940, there was a British expedition to the island. They were not the first people to be there since 1940. I think I have a list in here of all the people that went there in between. But they found some human bones on the island and like the remnants of a campsite. And they found a sextant and a jar of freckle cream and the sole of a shoe that they said was a woman's shoe. It was a size nine, not Amelia's size. And people were like, the sextant was Fred Noonan's sextant. Fred Noonan used an octant, which he specifically requested for the flight. Anyway, these 1940s British guys, they found some bones from one skeleton. They sent it to Fiji for analysis by, a, I believe, a British doctor named Dr. Hoodless. He determined that the bones belonged to a male over the age of 45 who was at least 5'5". Amelia was 5'8". Fred Noonan was over six foot. Amelia was a woman. Then the bones went missing for 70 years. Then in 2018, I think, someone found a box of bones in a museum on the island of Tarawa, which is not in Fiji. And they were like, these might be those bones. The bones basically got lost during World War II. So it's conceivable that they would have been moved. But still. They were like, these might be those bones. We don't know that those were those bones, but they set them off for DNA testing. They were tested along with DNA from Amelia's living niece. They were not her bones. The end. As I said, on 1940, on the 1940 expedition, they also found a woman's shoe sole and a jar of freckle cream. Everyone says, oh, that could have been Amelia's. Here's the thing. Critics of this theory say Amelia barely brought a change of clothes, so she wasn't bringing, like, cosmetics. Also... There had been a bunch of people that came to the island in between them. One was a lands commissioner with a group of potential settlers, like 20 people. One was a group of laborers building a settlement that they ended up not using. One was a geographical survey done by the Navy who left the sextant behind. During World War II, there was actually a radio station built on Gardner Island and several Coast Guard officers lived there and worked there and nobody found parts of the plane or evidence that she'd been there. From 2002, I think, to like 2012, Nautilus did a bunch of mapping of the seafloor in like a huge radius and they didn't see anything. In the early 2010s, Tigar made 11 expeditions to Gardner Island slash Nicomaroro and they found nothing. Um, Then Robert Ballard, the guy who found the Titanic, Mm, went out there and he did an underwater search and also found nothing. And his team was basically like, if her plane was near there, we would have found it. In 2018, Tigar published a paper with new evidence to support the castaway theory, where they dug up 120 contemporary reports from around the world of radio messages that were allegedly heard by various people between her last transmission on July 2nd and July 18th, 1937. They determined that 70 of them were not credible. They were hoaxers being like, I was just at home listening to my radio and I heard a woman's voice say, I'm Amelia Earhart. Come help me. Mm-hmm. They were like 70 of them were hoaxes. They determined that 50 of them were credible. A lot of the credible ones are from ships in the area and Navy radio stations in the hours after her last transmission. And a lot of them are just like, we heard Itasca calling Earhart. We heard a carrier signal, which is what Itasca requested from her. Um, we heard like someone keying the microphone, like doing dashes, which to me seems plausible. I don't think that's like unreasonable. Then there are some people who are just regular people who were at home, like in Texas, listening to their radios. And they say they suddenly heard weird messages come through. So basically, the explanation of this theory is that radio transmitters put out harmonics of their wavelengths basically like multiples on like, for example, like 3105 and 6210 are harmonics of each other. So like you could conceivably hear sometimes you'll hear that message on a higher or lower harmonic and particularly high wavelengths um, or yeah, high harmonic frequencies, they skip off the ionosphere so they can travel really long distances, but they're not like you can't reliably broadcast on them. 
So they're saying like maybe some people basically like picked up these messages that were just like skipping off of the sky into Texas. Some people were allegedly hearing messages on their radios at the fifth and sixth harmonic frequency of 3105, which is how Tigar is like, these are credible because they were like on her wavelength, basically. Some of the transmissions are just dashes. Some of them are carrier, carrier signals. Some of them are very dramatic. And they're like people who heard K-H-A-Q-Q, which was her call sign. Some people heard things like her saying, we'll have to get out of here. Like the water's high. We can't stay here long. A lot of those, like I said, Tiger deemed as hoaxes. I read through a lot of them. Like I said, there's like 150 of them. In Tiger's report, they write what people say they heard and then they write any qualifying factors. And the dramatic ones, a lot of them are like someone heard heard like plane on reef, water high, storm coming in. And then the qualifying factors are like, there's no reef there. Based on tidal data, the water would have been low and there was no storm that day. So you're like, okay. That's really cool. That's not real. But Tiger did all this research on like tidal data and they like realized that, and again, this could be a rabbit hole, but they realized that the ones they've deemed as credible came in at the hours of like low tide. So they were like, maybe she like, landed her plane on uh, this island. And when the tide was up, like they couldn't get out to the plane. But when the tide was down, they could get out to the plane, like that sort of thing. <sighs> the distress calls could be a rabbit hole. They're worth mentioning. NPR reported on it when they published their findings a few years ago. I tend to think that like the Navy ships who heard dashes and carrier signals were probably hearing her. It's possible um, because it seems like her radio was just like in and out. The Itasca did hear one last transmission from her after the last official transmission, but they couldn't hear it. Like, it was just garbled audio. So we do have reason to believe that, like, she was still using her radio. There's one in Tigar's report that I think is interesting, which is at 2.42 a.m. on July 5th, this is a few days after she went missing, the naval radio station at Wailupe intercepted a Morse code transmission that was copied by three Navy operators and they described it as extremely poor keying, which is consistent with Amelia and Fred not being able to do Morse code. And also the Electra was originally equipped with two Morse code keys and they were both left off. Like one of her mechanics had one and one of her mechanics had the other because they didn't know how to use Morse code. So they didn't bring them. So it would have been like, she wasn't even really keying. She was like keying with her microphone. And the message said, 281 North Howland, call K-H-A-Q-Q, beyond North, don't hold with us much longer, above water, shut off. I wasn't sure if this was real, so I tried to independently verify it. And it's, they talk about it on the U.S. Coast Guard's website under the history page about the Itasca. I don't want to give too much airtime to this because it's all theories and like we don't really know. I think all this shows us is that she quite possibly lived for hours or even days after her last official transmission with Itasca, whether she landed on an island and survived for a few days or crashed into the Pacific, I don't think it really matters ultimately. Like, I hope they find her plane someday. I hope we learn what happened to her because it would be nice for us. It doesn't really matter for her. As I've said before, I think her death is probably the least interesting thing about her. I think she did what she set out to do. She flew around the world. She said herself that her childhood dreams came true. Before she left, she said, As far as I know, I've only got one obsession, a small and probably typically feminine horror of growing old, so I won't feel completely cheated if I fail to come back. <laughs> I love her so Me too. much. In 1940, the 99s established the Amelia Earhart Memorial Scholarship Fund to honor her memory and perpetuate her ideals and love of flying. From a single scholarship of $125 in 1941, it has grown to help over 750 women from around the world to advance and succeed aviation and aerospace. One of the scholarships is a training scholarship. Like it's like 20 grand or something to give a, like give a woman flight lessons. That's so good. George published her manuscript for World Flight under the title Last Flight. Oh, come on, George. He wrote oh. this in the introduction. No. I'm going to cry. We're going to have to do I a couple know, takes of these. <laughs> At San Francisco, we looked out one evening at the Pacific. 
Again, from our hotel window in Miami, we saw the sunrise on the Atlantic. Each time, A.E. gazed silently for a time. And each time, her words were almost the same. It's a very big ocean. So much water. She spoke with a little sigh, which promptly dissipated into a reassuring chuckle. I asked if she could not give up the project. Life held so much else. Her reply is clear in my mind. Please don't be concerned. It just seems that I must try this flight. I've weighed it all carefully. With it behind me, life will be fuller and richer. I can be content. Afterward, it will be fun to grow old. I think somehow she knew. Whatever came to pass, the contentment she sought was assured. When I go, she often said, I'd like best to go in my plane. Quickly. So this is not a chronicle of regret, but of high and happy adventure. This is as she would have her book. May its pages convey some measure of the pervading charm and magic character of Amelia Earhart, whose explorings were as much of the mind and spirit as of the air. GPP. He closed the book with this poem she wrote. Courage is the price that life exacts for granting peace. The soul that knows it not knows no release from little things. Knows not the livid loneliness of fear, nor mountain heights where bitter joy can hear the sound of wings. How can life grant us boon of living, compensate for dull gray ugliness and pregnant hate unless we dare the soul's dominion? Each time we make a choice, we pay with courage to behold the resistless day and count it fair. And that is the story of Amelia Earhart. I love that. I love her. I wish she didn't die. <laughs> Hot take from Maggie Seville I'm over sad. here. Yeah. I think it's crazy that we still have not found her plane. I know. It's upsetting. I want to put forward this theory, which I am saying in all seriousness, not because of who I am mm -hmm. as a human being. What if she went through a wormhole? <laughs> okay, so alien abduction is also a theory. I just, um, like, I feel like there's no way that we wouldn't have found her plane yet. Yeah, I think, I think what I think is that I think that their calculations must have been off and they must have not been close to Howland Island. Yeah. Which means, I mean, the the ocean around Howland Island is 18,000 feet deep. Woof. And so we know that she had taken an unexpected climb to 10,000 feet early in the flight, which probably wasted a lot of gas, and that she was encountering big headwinds. So I think they were, like, not making the time they thought they were making. And I think she just, like, probably was not close to Howland when she was doing her search pattern. Yeah. That said, that's not to say that, like, Fred wasn't doing a good job. And I don't think that Fred was, like, drunk. I think that it was just they didn't have the radio to help them find Howland, so. Yeah. I wonder if there's, like, search groups working to look elsewhere. That's a good question. Or are we going to have to make millions? <laughs> and go find it and ourselves. And spend it. Like I said, I just honestly, I think that, like, she did what she came here to do. Yeah. You know? And she went out the way. She went out the way she wanted she to wanted. go out. And, like, I think that she would probably laugh at me for crying about it. <laughs> you know? Like, I <laughs> yeah. don't think she thinks it's that sad. Um, I don't think anyone wants to, like, die. And I don't think it's, like, nice to die that way. But she, I mean, George says it. It's like she knew. Before she left for her flights, she would, like, send out letters. for Like, she, remember for her transatlantic flight, she sent yeah. out letters. And in every one of them, she was like, I'm doing it because I want to do it. I know I might die. My favorite part of her quote is she says, when women fail, like, we must take it as a challenge to others. You know, like, she knew that she might not make it. And she was willing to take the risks. I think George is right. I think somewhere in her heart she probably knew that, like, she might go out this way. Yeah. I love her thought about afterward it will be fun to grow old. Yeah. I love that. Me too. I think that's a good way to, like, have goals. <laughs> yeah, I do too. <laughs> it will be fun to grow old. There's so much good in that story. I know. I just feel like she's so much more than yeah. the end and, of this flight. And the end of that flight is so much more than just, like, 
a mystery or like, I wish we knew what happened. It's like so much more than that. Yeah, I agree. And I can't remember who said it, but someone in my research said, honestly, that this is probably more miscommunication than mystery. Oh, yeah. It's just like the radio frequencies were wrong. Her equipment was malfunctioning. Yeah. They didn't communicate about it because they didn't have William Miller to coordinate everything. Like she and George were doing it themselves. And she was like finding out at the last minute, like, oh, they can't take bearings on that frequency. Like my radio only transmits on 3105 and 6210. So I think it's just a miscommunicate, just a series of miscommunications, honestly. Yeah, I would agree. I think it's much simpler than a wormhole, but it could be a wormhole. It always could be a wormhole. (laughs) I loved that. I love that too. Thank you for your extensive, (laughs) thorough, heartbreaking research. Thanks for listening through three episodes if you did that. If you you skipped, that was a mistake. I mean, I don't. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for listening. Thank you for going on this inspiring and (laughs) heart wrenching and beautiful journey in which we even got to be mad at men it's true i hope that everyone walks away from this feeling inspired and as i said like looking at what i wouldn't even call as a call a failure but like looking at these attempts as just challenges to push the boundaries especially as women i loved that thank you thank you we don't know stay in your lane buckle the buck up Smooches from GPP (laughs) on the tarmac right before you fly into the scariest thing you've ever done. And smooches from AE as she blasts off (laughs) into the great unknown. In many ways. Mm -hmm. Goodbye. Goodbye. Anatomy of an ad. Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect. Define an opportunity. Imagine talking to millions of people across the U.S. like I am now. Identify a problem. Creating an audio ad is time-consuming. Offer a solution. Utilize cutting-edge AI. Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did. To create this ad, to learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai. Hey, are you a super fan of Taylor Swift, Jelly Roll, or Morgan Wallen? Are you that song nerd who likes to dive into every little lyric of every little song and figure out what everything means? Do you want to take that a bit further, though? Because I have a podcast called Songwriter Soup, and it dives into the journey of a songwriter and how those people help craft the soundtrack of your life. I'm Laura Veltz, and I'm bringing all of my friends together to discuss our funny little job writing for all of your favorite artists. Listen to Songwriter Soup wherever you get your podcasts.